Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 51 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike, and that is Gavin. Gavin, Syracuse just won in double overtime. I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah, um, and as much as I consider myself a Syracuse fan, uh, I didn't even know they were playing today. <laughs> <laughs> I you know we and so that we were just talking about this before uh, we started recording, but it's been uh, a couple of years since I've paid attention to. I used to be really into college and NBA basketball, uh-huh. uh, like to the point where I w- I went to one Syracuse game, at least one Syracuse game a year for like five or six years. And like, while Syracuse was probably the largest big city around you, it wasn't like you were right nearby. No, it was like an hour, a little over. Right, an hour. exactly. Uh, but yeah, from from like, hmm, probably like twenty twelve. Yeah, maybe like twenty eleven, somewhere around there. Um, and then for you know five six years after that, I went to at least one game a year, and that doesn't include us going to like the like the first practice of the season. I'm sure a lot of different schools do this, but they have like a, an open practice. We can come and, you know, watch them play. They have, you know, different vendors and stuff there. I think it's called like midnight, midnight madness. Yeah. Midnight, midnight madness. madness. Yeah. And so I went fun, to, as long as no one's getting stabbed. Yeah. That happened one year and then they did, charged the next year. It, like it dollar, was free. Right. Uh, I think it was like somewhere between five and $15 somewhere around somewhere, there. Yeah. It was, it was but, supposed to be cheap, but yeah, just to try um, and keep, you know, that was the last year that we went was, was that yeah. a, that that year that they charged? Uh, understandable. Well, not understand. not not because they charged, but because Syracuse has gotten worse since then. <laughs> yes, it's been it's been sort of a, a slow and non-linear path downward over the last decade or so for yeah. Syracuse Orange. But you know who's on their way up? The New York Mets. They just let's, signed a pitcher and on that forty three million dollars a year. Ah, let's man. let's move on and not talk about I was going to try and hijack this into a sports podcast but the the inferior New York baseball team. Um Ooh. Ooh, all right. Are we trying to fight now? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. So, uh before we get into this episode, uh we actually have a couple of yeah, a couple uh, programming notes. Yeah, so we actually recently got left a message uh through I Didn't know that was possible. Yeah, so uh the podcast <laughs> a, a little behind the scenes fourth wall stuff. <laughs> The podcast is hosted on Anchor.fm. There's a pretty large variety of different podcast places where it's like you upload your podcast to that one service, and then they distribute it to wherever you listen to this, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. Gavin, do you want to guess why we chose Anchor.fm? I'm guessing it was the cheapest. Not only is it the cheapest, it's free. Ah, perfect. Um, (laughs) And it's nice. It works well. Yeah, I mean, uh, it gives us, you know, it's not like we need a ton of like analytics or things, which they give us pretty good analytics for being free. Exactly. Uh, it's I have no complaints at all about Anchor.fm considering what we're trying to do here. Yeah, absolutely. And so a new feature that we discovered, uh, actually somebody discovered it for us, is that you can, <laughs> le- you can leave us voice messages. Uh, yeah. So if you go to uh anchor.fm or actually we'll we'll put it in the in the show notes um our podcast page and if you want to leave us a voice message uh a please be nice to us uh or or at least don't be vulgar uh and if you do we might include it in an episode who knows um so my old grad school advisor uh speaking of which the day we're recording this is actually his 50th birthday. So happy. happy oh, you're kidding. Yeah. Happy slightly belated birthday, Darren. Uh, he left me, well, left, left the show, a, uh, 
voice message, among other things, mostly saying stop bad-mouthing camels. That was his um, main point. Yeah. Yeah. So the groups that he works with is not like exclusively camels, but he does work a bit with camels. And uh, to that, I say, no. Wow. Okay. I'm not. I'm not going to stop bad mouthing camels. Um, We're like four minutes into this podcast, and you're just making enemies left and right, Gavin. Yeah. Yes, I am. Um, but he said, uh, you know, a variety of other things. But uh, I didn't reach out to him or didn't have time. I was pretty busy uh, in the couple of days since he left that uh, message to actually reach out to him to be like, hey, can we include part of this in the show? Otherwise, you would have just heard him. Um, but. No, I will not stop hating on camels. Uh, we will do an episode about camels at some point for sure. Uh, and we may potentially have a guest for that. Uh, I have an idea who that might be. Yeah. So if you feel so inclined and would like your literal voice heard on the podcast, feel free to leave us a, a voice message. Yeah, this is the now explicit warning now that we know this exists. If you leave us a voice message, you know that is also you telling us that you are allowing us to play it on the actual podcast. Yeah. Because we don't have that permission now, we are not uh, we are not playing the one voice message that was left to us thus far. Absolutely. Uh, and then one really quick programming note just from me uh, before we get into the actual content of this episode. So I, I realized, because I have been going back through and do with uploading all the stuff to YouTube, um, I've realized that considering we're a science podcast, we don't tend to cite our sources that often. <laughs> uh, which Which is on me because I'm the one who like writes the scripts for these episodes more or less. And so uh, that's something that we're going to be better about in the show notes. Uh, I'm going to be leaving Mike at least starter links to get you started. If you want to look into more things and then probably over the next couple of weeks, I'll be going back in and like sort of retroactively be adding sources to older episodes. So if you have an episode that you're particularly interested in, give it about two weeks and then go back and you take a look at the show notes and that, and you'll find some, uh, some good links to get started if you want to look more into a particular topic. Um, yeah, that is definitely something we should have been doing uh, from mm -hmm. the beginning, but there's no reason, you know, there's no reason not to start now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so in the show notes, you'll find at least, like I said, starter links, nothing super technical. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll do like a majority, not super technical. And then one or two uh, that are more technical. If you feel like getting in the weeds, um, but speaking of this episode, there were no weeds at the time that we're talking about today. Ooh, was that a transition? It was a transition. It's pretty, it's pretty smooth, right? Well, before you do that transition, do we want to give a quick preview of next week's episode, or do we want to leave that as a surprise? No, nah, we're just leaving that as a surprise. Although, All right, so tune in to next week's episode. It's a surprise. It is. It is our podcast one-year anniversary. I'm not going to spoil what the topic is, but I'm, I've been working on it for... Uh, over a month months? now, probably. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, uh, so I'm, I'm it's super, months, super like, excited for at it. At this point, I think. I'm, I'm very excited for it. So keep an eye out for next week's episode. Anywho, uh, now that it's starting to get a little colder out, not as much where I am because I'm in, I'm currently back in the desert. Um, <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not in my blanket fort. This hotel room that I'm in this time is, is different and doesn't need the blanket fort. But, uh, my mom actually just sent me back back home in New York uh, a nice little video of some snowfall today. And Mike, yeah. living living in the Syracuse area, which is very famous for its snow and cold, uh, I'm assuming that it's rather cold there right now. So I've been referred to as a polar bear at many times. 
as of right now, it's hanging around like 30, 32 okay. degrees, right. which for me, I look at that, I'm like, it's not too it bad. Gets, it gets 50 degrees colder than this around here. Yeah. We can't be saying it's cold yet. So most people would say it's cold. I am. Uh, You're I'm a true Syracusean. If you let the cold know that it's getting to you now, it's going <laughs> to bury you by January. That's been my philosophy. Well, now that it's getting sort of cold, cold-ish, <laughs> it's getting let's, colder. let's talk about advanced cold. Ooh. Ooh. So today we're going to be discussing a period slash periods of Earth history that is colloquially known as Snowball Earth. What's it officially known as? We're going to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> All right, we're going to get there. I'm looking so, forward to it. Mike, ju- just based off of the name, Snowball oh, Earth. We're doing this, damn it. All right. I know you thought you could escape it, but no, yeah, you can, ne- right, you can never escape me. So what, what, just based on the, the words, Snowball Earth, what, what do you think that entails? So uh, my best guess would be that the either polar ice caps or, um, you know, the Antarctic line and the Arctic line or something along that line um, are just significantly further down um, in terms of lines of latitude than they are today. We have a best guess. I'm assuming that at the equator, there's no real time where there's um, any regular snow or frozen water um, throughout Earth's history. But if I had to guess, when we're talking about snowball Earth, we are talking about, um, you know, regular periods of freezing temperatures and frozen water, you know, significantly closer to the equator than we have now. That is sort of correct. <laughs> that, that's my brand. Well, I thought it was actually really funny in you saying that I don't think there was ice at any point uh, at the equator in Earth's history. Are you going to tell me that's wrong? We're going to talk about that a lot today. Um, oh. oh, boy. And so just just also a quick correction to something uh, that, that a lot of people don't seem to understand. Because uh, you mentioned, like the like you said, the Antarctic or, or Arctic line. Yeah, that's a topic I, I, I'm I, I think are you, talk, are you talking about the like Arctic Circle? Yeah, I think that's what I'm referring to. So the Arctic Circle and the Antarctic Circle are lines of latitude at I believe 67 degrees north for the Arctic Circle and 67 degrees south for the Antarctic Circle, those uh, don't have actually anything to do with ice. Those are daylight stuff. Um, oh, okay. So it's I... basically if you are north of the Arctic Circle or south of the Antarctic Circle, that is the sort of the cutoff for in that hemisphere's winter you start to get periods of longer than 24 hours without any sunlight. And in the summer. And in the, the summer reverse. you get, yeah. yes. Um, so that's okay. just sort of the, the cutoff for when you start to experience that going full days without sunlight or without sunset. I feel like that's something I knew at one point and just you know, clearly forgot, but that makes total sense. Yeah, and that, and that just is, is up to the tilt of the earth. Um, that's not anything to do do with with like a climate thing. Yeah. So even way back when the dinosaurs were around, which we'll talk about, there wasn't really any significant polar ice. Um, that still was the same. Uh, the earth, the earth's tilt might've been slightly different than it is today, but, uh, there would have been areas at the poles where it was, you know, for a a couple of weeks in the winter, it was permanently dark for a couple of weeks in the summer. It's permanently light. Um, but 
something that I feel like a lot of people either misunderstand or just like vaguely understand, but not super important to, to, to today's conversation. Anywho, Snowball Earth is a hypothesis or collection of hypotheses that at various points in Earth history, it was entirely covered or nearly entirely covered in glaciers. Think Hoth from Star Wars Episode Five. I have some bad news. You've never seen it. Okay. Um, <laughs> more or less, extreme glaciers stretching to the equator or really close to it, depending on who you ask, which that phrase, depending on who you ask, will be heard many times. <laughs> so does in, that mean there just wasn't a whole lot episode. of like solid land and most of like, you know, the solid ground on the planet was frozen water. We're going to talk about that, but first I think it's okay. really important to talk about ice ages in general, because a lot of people know that very recently in earth's history and technically today, again, depending on who you ask, we are in an ice age or there very recently was an ice age, but not many people sort of understand what that actually means. So yeah. What does that mean? Actually, now that you mention it all in ice age means, and again, people will quibble on the details about this, but as, as I understand it, uh, an ice age is just a time where there is permanent ice that is not like on mountaintops. Because mountains as high as like Mount Everest, even if it was at the equator, would still probably have ice on it if it's, you know, miles, plural, above sea level. That's probably going to have ice on it. But, but let me ask, so you said yeah. that there's any ice, so like... If Antarctica exists, or I get, you know, Antarctica is partially an archipelago, I guess, of solid land, but like. No, Antarctica is an entire continent. Right. But I, I know there's some like solid land under all the ice, but like if there is any ice at all in Antarctica, that means that we are in an ice age. So the, the phrase I used was permanent ice, which means ice right. that goes more than a year. So it does not melt in the summer, not fully. Right. So, right. So if that ice exists for more than a year then we are in an ice age regardless of how big it is up to, you know, I guess a certain order of magnitude. Right. And it's like, you sort of need to hit like a certain threshold to get like, Oh, during your winter, you need enough snow for it to be able to keep itself cold because, uh, you know, some in the summer temperatures in Antarctica do get well above freezing, but there's just enough ice there that it keeps itself cold. Right. Um, so basically if you go multiple years, without the ice at the poles melting that is loosely the definition of an ice age wow which wow. again again sounds relatively common to, because that is all we are used to today both of the poles have a lot of ice on them you know on antarctica ice sheets can be you know a kilometers thick you know potentially like up to like a mile thick of just solid ice uh, and in the Northern Hemisphere, like the glaciers on Greenland don't get as thick, but, you know, are, are still probably, you know, a kilometer plus. So, you know, half a mile thick. And so that that's all that we've known, you know, but that is actually quite rare in Earth history. 
because even though like during the the time of the dinosaurs the mesozoic era um there might have been seasonal ice at the poles you know there it, during those weeks or months of not having any sunlight if you were in the arctic or antarctic circle it was probably below freezing but global temperatures were high enough that you know when the summer came around all of that snow eventually melted so having permanent ice at the poles is quite rare and in fact in the phanerozoic eon the eon that we are currently in so basically in the last 541 million years is is ago is the start of the phanerozoic that has only happened three times what's only happened three times having ice at the poles that's just wild to yeah. me that again because that we, we are so Wait, used to it because that is all that we have ever known so let me ask a, a question with regards to that so in the current time that we've had this permanent ice at the poles how long mm -hmm. has that occurred for like how recent is that we we'll get there. I'm going to break down the, those three times, okay. just so we get a frame of reference for Snowball Earth, because none of these times are Snowball Earth. Wonderful. All right, let's get to it. So the first time in the Phanerozoic uh, that this happened was in the late Devonian period. So this was multiple pulses. So it's not like it just went and stayed. You know, there was a lot of glaciers, and they retreated a bit. Then they uh, advanced and retreated. Multiple pulses of it. That lasted for around 10 to 15 million years. And that ranged from, give or take, 372 million years ago to 360 million years ago. So, like I said, max like 15 or so million years. Mm -hmm. The next one was in the late Carboniferous period through most of the Permian period. And again, this was multiple pulses. And this time lasting, you know, around 100 million years of this sort of generally cooler temperatures. And this lasted from, depending on who you ask, you know, somewhere toward, uh, you know, 360 to 260 million years ago. So there was not a long gap between those two. There was a bit of time during most of the early and middle Carboniferous period where uh, things were pretty tropical. Uh, lots and lots of plants and uh, but very long extended period of generally cool temperatures with permanent ice. That doesn't necessarily mean that there were huge ice sheets getting down toward the equator though. Uh, and the modern glaci glaciations, which depending on who you ask, go from around 34 million years ago uh, is when permanent ice is thought to have started in Antarctica. Not so much at the North Pole, but in Antarctica, probably around then, to today. Or if you consider needing both poles to have ice, or probably closer to five to three million years ago through till today. So Antarctica had polar ice sheets around 30 to 35 million years ago, but yeah. the Arctic didn't have those permanent ones until, you know, three or five million years ago. Is that about right? Right. And the, okay. the northern... Ones I'm a little more iffy on. Those numbers were a little more harder to track down, but that's so generally what I was able to find. Mm -hmm. uh, but you'll notice there's a roughly 230 million year stretch with no permanent ice. 
that goes from the late Permian, around 260 million years ago, all the way through the time of the dinosaurs, and then through half of, quote, you know, the, the, the time of mammals, you know, to around 34 million years ago. So roughly half of, uh, you know, probably like 40% of the Phanerozoic Eon was a completely, you know, straight period of no permanent ice on the planet at all, with the exception of like really tall mountains. But we're not here to talk about that. <laughs> that is not what we're talking about. That is small potatoes. Oh. Considering what we're talking oh. about today. I just wanted this to talk small. about that, considering how rare in general that is. Okay, so we have some misdirection. All right, what are we actually talking about today then? I also wanted to find something real quick else before we get into it. So the opposite, <laughs> I know, so This again, this episode is going to be real weird because it's, it's old and it's very Amen. foreign. That's our brand. Let's make it happen. Absolutely. So the opposite of an ice age, or it's, it's commonly called an ice house climate conditions, is a hothouse or a greenhouse climate condition. And that is basically the other times. You, there's, there's not really a good name. I'm sure that there is a technical name for like when you're on the cusp of going from one to the other. But generally, mm-hmm. you're, you're either in an ice house climate condition or you're in a greenhouse climate condition and these are times where there's lots of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere uh mm-hmm. we've talked about that and uh we're really Would doing be our now? best we're uh no are because we, we still we still we still have true? the ice we well we're doing a really good job at trying to get to a greenhouse um <laughs> okay because we are still in in an ice house climate because we have the permanent ice but we're we're really trying hard <laughs> to to get to the to to not have that anymore Oh boy, gallows humor is one hell of a thing. So almost everything that we've talked about on this entire show over the past year has been in the Phanerozoic Eon. As we talked about in our episode about the geologic timescale, Eon is the largest unit of geologic time. I think technically there's like a super Eon, but that's not important. So the Phanerozoic Eon like I mentioned earlier, goes from 541 million years ago until today. Snowball Earth happened, depending on who you ask, at several points throughout the Proterozoic Eon, the previous one, before the Phanerozoic, which the Proterozoic Eon, you know, the, the Phanerozoic, the current one, like I said, 541 million years. That's a long time. Pretty much everything we've talked about on the show has happened in that time. Mm -hmm. The Proterozoic lasts from two and a half billion years ago until that 541 million years ago. So basically two billion years worth of time. This is a major, major portion of Earth history. And during that whole time, it it was Snowball Earth? No. So it was at a couple of points. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, so it, it, it comes and goes during that 2 billion year period. Yes, J- just okay. like the glaciers have, have come and gone during the Phanerozoic, they also come and go during this time as well. I was going to say, I thought you said that this was you know more of a rare occurrence and you know, 2 billion years Absolutely. of history is you know a lot. So because of how old some of these events are, we don't have a ton of really good rocks to tell us about this time. You know, as we've talked about, the farther back you go, you know, as rocks just are around for longer, 
you know, they can be eroded, they can be subducted down into the planet and be destroyed that way. Um, we could have destroyed them just doing our human building things. Um, so in general, rocks from this old are, are not plentiful, but we do have some. Uh, and the earliest suggested glaciation uh, of, I, I think, in the planet in general, uh, because as I mentioned, quite rare. And especially with Earth, Earth started out very, very hot. Uh, the first eon of Earth is called the Hadean, named after Hades, because it was real heckin' hot. Uh, so the Proterozoic Eon comes after that and it is cooler just because the planet is not new, but this first place to get to hotter, like, yeah, kind of exactly. Way to go. Exactly. And so this first glaciation is named after Lake Huron here in North America. It's called the Huronian glaciation in the paleo Proterozoic. So the early part of the Proterozoic. And it lasted from 2.4 to 2.1 billion years ago. If you're doing some quick math, that's 300 million years. That's a lot. That's a lot. And around this time also is an event that we will do an episode on eventually because it's also a very, very important event in Earth history known as the Great Oxidation Event, which is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, Earth's atmosphere received, you know, actually measurable levels of oxygen for the first time ever. And how does that happen? Is that like plants? Not plants, but uh, like single-celled photosynthetic organisms. Ah. The the things that plants came from. Um, And... At this time, you know, there were lots of different pulses of oxygen, just like we've talked about with the different pulses of ice. You know, there were pulses of oxygen that would eventually, there was a lot of iron, like, uh, dissolved in the oceans at the time. And for iron, iron's very reactive chemically, which is why things rust pretty quickly. So this uh, iron would suck up all the oxygen that these things were making. And so you had to get rid of all the oxygen dissolved in the oceans for, before you could actually get free usable oxygen, um, which took a really long time. But once that happened, uh, these photosynthetic organisms were abundant enough to produce oxygen. And a lot of funky things happen when you just change the chemistry of the planet like that, because number one, carbon, as we mentioned, in its various forms are greenhouse gases. Methane is probably the one of the worst forms of greenhouse gas. But carbon dioxide is also pretty bad. We, we had an entire episode about fossil fuels that discusses the, the sort of the chemistry of that. But when you combine methane and oxygen, this, this newly available resource, that combines to form uh, carbon dioxide. So you're taking the worse one and turning it into less bad one. So that removes, basically reduces the levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And then also with all of these uh, photosynthetic organisms, they're still sucking up the CO2 as well. So they're reducing the amount of carbon in the atmosphere in multiple different ways. Clarifying question here. Yeah. So you, you mentioned like less bad and... Obviously, in the context of 
today when climate change is, you know, obviously something that we're all concerned with, mm -hmm. you know, like more methane is, you know, really bad and CO2 is still pretty bad. Yeah. But is it right to think of these gases as bad or good during this period of time? I know it's easy for to like contextualize that, that's a, them today. Like that's that. a fair question. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'd say in, if, if you're wanting to keep the planet warm, they're good. So, um, I would say that, let, let me rephrase that a bit. So methane is more effective as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Okay. So by combining the methane with oxygen, that turns the methane into carbon dioxide, which reduces its effectiveness at keeping the planet warm. Uh, and then also all of these things producing this oxygen suck up the carbon dioxide. So you're reducing the effectiveness of the greenhouse effect while also removing carbon in the first place. So both of these things combined had a huge, huge, huge effect on climate, namely dropping temperatures a lot, very, very quickly as well. And so uh, around this time, glaciers, you know, obviously with this one being as old as it is, you know, over 2 billion years old, we don't have a lot of evidence. We'll, t we'll talk about the evidence for all of these in a little bit because they all have the same lines of evidence. You know, it's not like this old one has different evidence. It's just that the same evidence for glaciation in general, just in older rocks. So we'll talk about how we know that these events happened in a bit. Uh, but at this time, it is thought that... Uh, Maybe not all the way at the equator, but very close. And temperatures at the equator would be somewhere around freezing. Which, compared to today, is a mighty big shift. <laughs> at the equator, they're around yes. freezing. Yep. So how, when we say around freezing, are we? do we mean like literally you know, hovering right around zero degrees Celsius? Or are we yes. saying, eh, they got down to like, you know, 10 degrees Celsius, or maybe it was negative 20 degrees, like, or was it really hanging right around freezing? It was, I mean, and granted, being 2 billion years ago, this is incredibly hard to project. This is all uh, very fuzzy, of course. Yeah, I, I am not a, a climate person. <laughs> uh, and even the climate people who study this, you know, the... You can only work with, you know, the, the data are only so good. If your data aren't very good, your models cannot be very good. So temperatures could have been around freezing or, you know, plus or minus 20 degrees, which is a big swing when you're talking about climate. Right. <laughs> there's, a, there's a big difference between 20 and negative 20, uh, as somebody from Syracuse, New York could tell you. Correct. So, uh, that is the oldest one. And the reason I'm just kind of brushing through that one just because it's the oldest and we have the least evidence for it. We know a glaciation happened, but we don't know a ton of the details. So that's the oldest one and the longest one, like I said, 300 million years, uh, back 300 million years ago from today, uh, mammals did not exist. Birds did not exist. Reptiles barely existed. Um, you would look in the oceans and see lots of weird, funky things. Uh, the planet would be almost unrecognizable if you were to time travel back 300 million years ago. And that was 
just this entire chunk of the planet being, depending on who you ask, mostly or entirely covered in ice. That's not to say that the oceans froze completely solid. It's not like a lake or something that can freeze solid in the winter, just like a layer of ice across the top of the entire ocean. Okay. The ones that are talked about a lot more in terms of snowball earth are ones in the Neo-Proterozoic, which is sort of the last part, uh, you know, right before the, like the Cambrian period, which we talked about last episode. Um, so not too long before that. So roughly, they talk about two major glaciations. One is called the Sturtian glaciation, which was uh, hovering around 700 million years ago. 715 to 665 million years ago. Uh, and the Marinoan glaciation, which was a little more recent, 650 to 635 million years ago. These glaciations, especially the, the second one, the Marinoan glaciation, it is proposed by some people, this is very highly argued, that the entire planet was covered in a shell of ice. Basically, like, um, what are those, like, toys that you used to get as a kid that then got, like, outlawed in the U.S. for some reason? Like, Kinder Balls? Oh, Wonder, like Wonder Balls? Oh, yeah, Wonder Balls with the prizes inside. Yeah, so you know how is that really thin shell of chocolate? Yeah. That, but ice. Dude, you're hitting a nerve for me right now. Okay. I know, I love Kinder Balls. Um, anywho. Wonder Balls. I think they're made by the Kinder, like... Is it like Kinder Eggs? Yeah, I think I'm same Googling company. That. Anywho. Yeah, okay, so there's Kinder Eggs and then Wonder Balls. Um, <laughs> Wonder Balls. <laughs> so, Jesus, Mike. Um, <laughs> so, the biggest question is how did this happen? I sort of talked about it a bit with the older one because that one's not as controversial. You know, we know that oxygen increased a lot at that time. We know the effects that that has on uh, the climate. But by this point, the oxygen was already there very solidly. So it's like, how? what was the mechanism that this happened under? And we mostly know from climate modeling which has errors for sure. And I don't personally understand climate, like I said. So I'm taking all of this from people who know more than me. Um, and as with every event that we've talked about so far in Earth history, whether it's an extinction, whether it's you know a radiation of life, um, there's never one cause. Like we talked about with the dinosaurs going extinct, it was not just big rock hits Earth, everything dies there were lots of other stuff going on on the planet too. And that's, that's true with this time as well. So the first thing that is pointed out about this time is that the sun was weaker than it is today. All right. How does that work? Um, like, how do we know that? Or what do you mean? Both. Like how, like, how is the sun weaker? Like, it's like, how does that physically work? And then like follow up to that. How do we know? Those are questions for smarter people than me. Um, okay. So I, I, to the best of my knowledge, and again, this is not, I'm not a physics person. I don't understand almost anything about space stuff. Uh, but as the sun fuses more of its uh, material, you know, uh, it 
has sort of less energy to burn, so it has to burn more energetic material. So the way the sun works is it uh, fuses uh, hydrogen into helium and then combines, you know, heliums into other things, combines some hydrogens with some heliums. And I think it exerts more energy or uh, um, produces more energy when it no longer is just doing hydrogen to hydrogen. Hmm. And okay. so that's how I understand it. That may or may not be correct. So um, the, I will find a source for that and put it in the show <laughs> notes. Um, okay. But so for the first one, the old, old one, it is estimated that the sun was 16% uh, dimmer, you know, one, one, six percent dimmer than it is today. And for these two glaciations, the more recent ones, it was around 6% dimmer, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're talking about the sun, yeah, right. That's rather, that's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So that, that's definitely a factor. It's not like the factor, but it is it is something to consider. As for the actual sort of trigger as to, you know, why did it happen at these times and not, you know, 500 million years beforehand? It's been sort of proposed that there might have been a super volcano that, you know, you, you might have heard about, you know, volcanoes before or even experienced like a large volcanic eruption such as like the one in Iceland, uh, you know, sometime in the early 2000s, I think. But large volcanic eruptions produce a lot of ash, which blocks out some sunlight, reflects it back into space and cools the planet. Uh, The larger the volcano, the more ash and dust it produces and the more it lowers temperatures. It could have been uh, a runaway photosynthesis thing again, like it was for the first glaciation that we talked about there caused by uh, just a general increase in photosynthetic bacteria, Uh, a lot of extra runoff from, uh, you know, the the continents providing more nutrients, things like that. That's a possibility uh, as well. Or uh, it could be just a weathering increase, which, uh, as we've talked about before, just sort of the chemical weathering of rocks just sucks CO2 right out of the atmosphere and sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere reduces temperatures regardless of it was probably a combination of all of those things, but regardless temperatures got low enough for ice to start forming on the poles and a really important sort of concept that needs to be understood to talk about these is something called a positive feedback loop. So do you have an example or have you ever heard of a positive feedback loop before? I, I not only have I heard one, I might totally fail on this. I think I might be able to define it. Yeah, go ahead. So my, my best understanding of this is a positive feedback loop is something that happens that is sort of self-perpetuating. Like the fact that it's happening, it is going to continue to cause, you know, that cycle to continue unless, you know, intervened on by, another force. I am trying to think of um, sort of like an everyday life example of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I am, I am sort of failing to come up with one off the top of my head. But just the general idea of a positive feedback loop, the fact that, you know, 
a reaction is occurring, it is going to cause itself to continue to happen unless acted on by some outside force is right. Sort of my best definition off the top of my head. Yeah. And that's, that's definitely true. And I'll give an example here because they are very important in understanding these events. So uh, a nice vocab word, you know, maybe an SAT word is something called albedo, which is basically how reflective earth is at a given point. Just really quick. If you're listening to this podcast and you're worried about the SAT, <laughs> go do literally anything else. You have better things to you do. You have way better things to do. Um, go like go commit crimes as a minor or something. <laughs> <laughs> like I, like okay. I don't know. Uh, That's not an official recommendation. But yeah, like, I was gonna say just a, yeah. just a, a, as a legal matter, we do not right. condone. Don't take do legal not, advice from a podcast, but like go have fun. We do not condone crime. Anyway, um, you don't condone crime. Moving on. Uh, <laughs> So Don't I'll, do crimes. Don't get caught, at least. Mike, you're a teacher. Uh, <laughs> Imagine so, what kind of teacher I am. <laughs> okay. Uh, albedo is how reflective Earth is. Uh, for example, if you've ever driven in a place with snow, you'll know snow is rather reflective. Uh, there's a term called snow blindness for when Can't it's just confirm. really bright out. Because all of the ice in the snow is reflecting that light that would normally be absorbed by trees or grass. Um, and that that's a general thing with, you know, rocks are generally, you know, pretty reflective, just bare rock. Uh, the ocean is not very reflective, even though you might get glare from it in general. Ocean water is uh, pretty, you know, it absorbs water, light and heat pretty well. So the positive feedback loop sort of comes in. In that you get some ice formed at the poles. Ice is reflective. So it re the more ice there is, the more it reflects heat and light back out into space. And the more heat is reflected, the colder temperatures get, which creates more ice, which reflects more light, which reflects more heat, which lowers temperatures more. So basically, the more ice, the lower temperatures, which means more ice can grow. So that, that is where the positive feedback loop is coming in here. Does that make sense? Right. And so can you explain, so we have positive feedback loop. Mm -hmm. There's also obviously, you know, the fact there's a positive feedback loop implies a negative feedback loop. Yeah. And what does, if you were describing negative feedback loop, what would be, you know, that example or that definition at least? Basically, like, as, as I understand it, basically something that snuffs itself out. So basically it can't be self-sustaining right it would be at least not indefinitely yeah for sure okay. and i again i with, without having it in front of me i'm struggling to come up with an example of a negative feedback loop but um i i hear mike googling so he'll be back with that in a moment correct uh what, what do you got for us oh you you asked me that now so examples <laughs> um Oh, boy. In audio amplifiers, negative feedback reduces distortion, which minifies... Eh, that's not a good example. Oh, you keep talking. I'll be back. Sure. So this feedback loop basically made it... So, And these are all computer models, which model climate, which we can never fully input all of the variables into a model. Climate is too complicated for us to fully put in every variable. But with that caveat, this, this is what it was telling us. 
once it got down to about 30 degrees latitude, which for reference is about where modern day Houston or Atlanta is. So not at all North. This is what is you know called the American South. You know, once ice got that low, these models predict that the positive feedback loop would be so strong that the ice would be enough to overcome any kind of warming and would basically just march inevitably to the equator. So I have some follow-up questions to that, but okay. Real quick, as far as a negative feedback loop, the best example I was able to find was if your body gets colder, that's going to cause your body to like mm. want to shiver and warm itself up. And so like your body will not get colder indefinitely. At some point, it will warm up. And same thing, if your body temperature gets too hot, you will start to sweat and that will cool itself down. So a negative feedback loop sort of has an expiration date. But with the ice itself, so mm -hmm. okay, so it is kind of past that. Uh, event horizon, we'll say, of around 30 degrees latitude. Mm -hmm. And at that point, there's not much that can stop the ice from going all the way to the equator. Yes. I don't know if you've been south. Uh, I, there's, I not a whole lot of, there's not a whole lot of permanent ice there at the moment, as you there might sure be very isn't. keenly aware. I assume we're going to get there, but like, what happened? I, I guess, what do you mean? So, there was ice there at one point. Mm-hmm. And the idea is, is that it's a positive how, feedback loop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like what we, broke we, that we, we will loop? talk about how we got to okay. not being a snowball anymore. Um, and then, so this was actually something that I threw in the notes really quickly afterward. Something uh, that kind of blew my mind, along with the, the sun being dimmer. And I, if I were a good podcast host, I would have put this up in that section. Um, but there were no clouds at this point in time. Wait, what? At this point... You, you can't it, just throw this... Every episode, you throw out like two or three of these that just... But how are there no clouds? It was too cold. Everywhere? Mm-hmm. Well, think about it. If you're having glaciers potentially miles thick in Houston, wow. it's going to be super cold. And by that, I mean around the equator, it would be... About as warm as like maybe not summer in Antarctica, which can you know these days be up in like the 60s Fahrenheit, uh, but like spring or fall in Antarctica, by which I mean cold. <laughs> and there's not a whole lot of clouds coming from the Antarctic region in the spring and fall, I assume. Right, and so the the clouds, all the moisture in the clouds would freeze and fall, and there was just not enough evaporating to replenish them and clouds are really important in also reflecting uh you know light and also weirdly trapping heat they, they do a weird combination of it and it kind of depends on what kind of clouds are it, it, it's a whole thing again i don't really understand climate um but clouds depending on what kind of cloud can either aid in warming or aid in cooling uh so with there being none they were not really doing either so <laughs> just a factor that I kind of just saw and I was like, that's a neat thing to include. Um, so again, especially during the Maranoan, the more recent of these two glaciations, uh, which again was sort of centered at around 640 million years ago. People will argue very strongly that 
there was no open ocean surface at all anywhere on the planet. Is there like a strong argument against that if people are arguing strongly for it? So, so nobody's really arguing that the glaciation happened. Everybody thinks that like, yes, this is an event that occurred. That there I mean, like, was... Nobody's arguing against it. Like there's no credible argument that it didn't happen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but they argue the the full extent. Was it fully solid or was it a little slushy? And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just constantly kicking this can down the road. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the evidence that we have in general for glaciations, and this sort of broadly applies to these times as well as those other glaciations that I talked about before, even the ones recently, like the one that we have today. So you'll get glacial deposits in tropical latitudes or paleo latitudes, you know, where it was at the time. And so glacial deposits, basically, uh, the key characteristic is that they are poorly sorted, which means that it's not like a nice, you know, big grains at the bottom of like a, you know, a uh, if you look at just like a wall of rock, it won't be like big stuff at the bottom, medium stuff in the middle, small stuff at the top. That is what we would call well sorted. And that means that it was deposited, you know, over time, it had lots of time to settle out. Glacial deposits are not like that. They are very poorly sorted, meaning you could get a giant boulder surrounded by pebbles and sand. Uh, that is very characteristic of glaciers. Uh, you get these things called drop stones, which are very self-explanatory. It's a big rock that was just kind of dropped in a place where it shouldn't be. Uh, <laughs> And commonly, you know, glaciers are really good at picking up rocks and pushing them somewhere else. And sometimes those rocks will get stuck to the glacier, even when the glacier is, you know, miles out to sea. You know, say a piece breaks off as an iceberg and just sort of floats out into the ocean. It's still carrying that big rock. Eventually, it's going to melt out and just drop. So you'll get these big, big, big rocks where they absolutely should not be. Uh, And we have good evidence of that kind of thing from uh from this time uh we get some carbon isotope stuff which isotope stuff this far back is a little rough but basically basically looking at the ratios of um you know different isotopes of carbon you can tell roughly global temperatures or how much how much productivity was going on how much life was doing at the time and from that, you can sort of interpret that to mean uh, various things about global temperature. This far back, it's not the most reliable, but it's still a tool in the box. And those sort of really highly suggest a decrease in productivity, suggesting a decrease in temperatures. Uh, they have these things called cap carbonates, which is essentially just a, some funky ocean chemistry going on, which causes carbonate minerals things like your calcite, which I've previously described as the stuff that uh, gets stuck in your Keurig that you have to pour vinegar into <laughs> to, to get out. Yes. Um, normally, limestone is made from that kind of mineral, and limestone typically is made from the shells of dead animals or other organisms like single-celled stuff. Uh, that's how limestones form today, and for a lot of Earth history that we've had life, that's how they're formed. These cap carbonates are not formed like that, they're still limestones, 
but they're not formed from life. Basically, some weird stuff going on with the ocean chemistry that makes those minerals just sort of crystallize out of the water without life doing it for the water. So it's like if you've ever made rock candy at home, which is a fun like science experiment you can do if you have a kid, similar process. How the sugar just like crystallizes to the, the stick or the string, whatever you use, uh, that just sort of happens. Uh, and then lastly, and one of my favorite lines of evidence is an iridium layer. Have you ever heard of iridium, Mike? Nope. I mean, let me rephrase it. Probably at some point, but no. <laughs> so iridium is an element and it is very rare on Earth. But it's fairly common out in space. And so there's a, a layer of iridium from this time. And there's also a very famous iridium layer from the end of the Cretaceous period from the asteroid that destroyed uh, or what made the dinosaurs go extinct, you know, asterisk, asterisk, um, that, that iridium layer is presumably from that meteorite. This iridium layer is not from that because the earth constantly receives like bits of space dust all the time. However, it's so diluted that you don't, it's not really that detectable. But this iridium layer essentially is from all of that space dust building up on top of the ice that was then deposited all at once when the ice melted. So it's not from this big single event. It's just the constant buildup. So suggesting that it was unable to be like actually deposited for a long time. And this was a proposal that could have prevented it from being deposited. Hmm. So do we, do we think this iridium came from space then? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Cause I guess where, I guess where else would it come from? Mm -hmm. hmm. And so we've talked about some potential causes. We've talked about how extreme this was. And like I said, depending on who you ask, uh, there's a, a lot of, depending on who you ask here, it's, uh, well, we'll I'll get circle back to that. Sorry. I lost my train of thought. I did not have enough coffee today. Um, how, how did you just call me weak? Weak. Oh, I'm really offended, Mike. Um, never had a cup of coffee in my life. Okay. Moving on. Um, so you asked earlier. Okay, if this was so crazy, if the Earth was potentially completely frozen, at least on the outside, you know, there still would have been liquid water underneath, but we would have looked much more like, you know, like one of Saturn's moons where the outside is frozen with some, you know, potentially liquid underneath. It would not look like the Earth we have today. How did we get to the Earth we have today if that's the case? This is where stuff gets a little weird because, again, depending on who you ask, this has really different answers, depending on exactly how frozen the Earth actually was. Oh, oh this is where, where that was a point of contention. This is where we get to the completely solid versus the more slushy side. Because <laughs> among the people who study this, this is very, very hotly contested. Okay. What are the, uh, what's the debate here? I mean, I can take a guess, but go for it. So, like I said, this hypothesis in general is called the Snowball Earth Hypothesis. 
many people also sort of argue that it should be called the slush ball earth hypothesis. That's less catchy. It is less catchy. Uh, But it is potentially more accurate because these people sort of propose that there was a huge amount of glaciation and it was real cold. But around the equator, there was a band of water that was more slushy at the top where it was more liquidy. Not, maybe not completely open ocean, but n- not frozen solid. And the the lines of evidence that they have are, some of them are speculative. Some of them are from models. Some of them are, they would argue, just kind of common sense. Because we have, uh, you know, a concept that we use a lot in science that you probably have heard of, which is called Occam's Razor. Ah, uh, yes, I'm familiar so go, go ahead, Mike. What What is Occam's Razor? Uh, it's phrased slightly differently, I think, depending on who you are. I think mm-hmm. just like in common parlance, it's the simplest answer is usually correct. I think if you were to talk to like somebody that's trying to impress a girl at a party, mm-hmm. they would be a little bit fancier and they were like, the answer that requires the least number of assumptions is usually correct. It's not a scientific answer, but when science doesn't provide an answer, it it is sort of like the best thing you have. So the way it was taught to me, and this was something speak, circling back to my advisor that he was very big on, was the definition that we use uh, in science for the most part is that the option with the fewest caveats, okay, the fewest exceptions needed is usually correct. And so with that being said, it is much, much easier to achieve a slushy earth than a solid one. Is that everywhere across the earth or is it like, you know, slushy, you know, slushy at the equator. Right. And then probably, you know, pretty solid as you go North or South. That seems to make a reasonable amount of sense. It is just much easier for that to happen because the equator receives, you know, the most amount of sunlight per year which means that it has the highest average temperature per year, typically. Um, Some weird things, you know, like the Sahara Desert kind of throw that off. But like, in general, the equator is more or less the hottest place on the planet. It is also, and this is also really important, much, much easier to come back from a slushy earth than it is to come back from a solid one based on climate models. Basically, the, the amount of... I mean, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, because the mechanism proposed that most people would probably assume to melt all the ice is an increase in CO2. Just like we see today, CO2, you know, more CO2 in the atmosphere means warmer temperatures. That is one of the easiest ways for the planet to heat itself is to produce more CO2. Based on climate models, the amount of... CO2 that you would need in the atmosphere to come back from a completely solid earth, you know, with it being that, that frozen layer, even all the way across the equator is the, the slush ball advocates would argue is just not reasonable. And without knowing anything about it, I mean, it just, you know, if something's not completely frozen solid, it will be easier to melt like that. Right. Yeah. It makes intuitive sense from somebody that doesn't know what they're talking about. 
Right. And it's like, well, we know, you know, X amount of CO2 increase in the atmosphere corresponds to Y amount of, you know, temperature increase. So like based on this, based on how we understand this math, uh, you would need so much CO2 to melt a completely frozen earth. It basically, the, the amount required increases exponentially compared to like the, the amount needed to melt the fully solid earth is exponentially more than to melt the, the slushy earth. And they would argue that in the amount of time that this event lasted, that amount of CO2 could not have built, built up. This all seems reasonable and makes sense. Again, w- without looking at the actual data, yes. Right. Um, right, just like intuitively. Like, I, I'm, it would not be hard for somebody to just, like, you know, pull you know, pull up some data. And if the data, you know, points to an opposite direction, then that find that, guess that's the way it happened. But mm-hmm. without conclusive evidence either way, this seems reasonable. Right. And... With that, I'm, I'm going to sort of push aside the slush ball versus completely frozen argument because I don't, even with looking into it, I did not have the time nor mental bandwidth over Thanksgiving uh, to look at all of the data. I will leave sources for you to do that for yourself if you so choose. Mm-hmm. Um, but... In general, how we sort of came back from it, whether it was slushy, whether it was solid, how we came back from it, more or less is that, well, just because the surface is frozen doesn't mean the rest of the planet is, because plate tectonics does not care if Ooh, the, the surface, okay. it does not care if the, the surface is frozen or if it is slushy or if it's not frozen at all, if it's completely liquid, plate tectonics does not really care. Um, so plate tectonics was still happening. And because of this volcanism, you know, volcanoes erupting, doing their general thing was still happening. And as many climate change, or at least human caused climate change denialists will tell you, volcanoes do produce a lot of CO2. Uh, especially given the timescales that we're talking about. Um, so... It is generally easier to have glaciers on continents than on open ocean. Just because, you know, water melts ice, right? Yeah. And so because of that, uh, the glaciers were more prominent on, or at least thicker, on land than they were on the ocean, on the continent. And so these volcanoes increased CO2, and then because the ice was thicker on the continents, that led to a decrease in the chemical weathering of the rocks, which meant that there was, as we talked about before, chemical weathering of rocks absorbs CO2. So if there's less of that going on, that means there's less CO2 being absorbed, which means more in the atmosphere. So volcanoes throwing off a lot of CO2 and not a lot of stuff around to absorb that, this led to a lot of it being built up to the point where even a little bit of the ice around the equator could melt. Which... And then once a little bit of that starts, do we have another positive feedback loop in the other direction? We absolutely do. 
because wow. as I mentioned, the water is much more able to absorb heat. It is less reflective than ice, which means warmer temperatures, which means more melting, which means more water, which means warmer temperatures. Uh, and basically just as quickly as it came on, snowball earth melted to the point where some people argue it could have taken as little as a, a thousand years for ice at the equator to retreat all the way back up to the poles. That, so wait, a thousand years? Like was, That is what some people have proposed. I don't know quickly? if I buy that. I don't know if I buy that, but that is what some people have proposed. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, but because we now have all of this CO2 in the atmosphere, it was really, really hot and lots of CO2 in the atmosphere. And by a lot, I mean up to 350 times what we have today. And I saw some figures that uh, said that that would make it roughly 13% of the atmosphere at the time was CO2 compared to, I think, roughly, uh, I think today it's somewhere around 2%. So, yeah, lots and lots of CO2 in the atmosphere, which meant right after this, it got really, really hot. And so this paved the way getting, you know, wrapping up here because this is a paleontology podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about how life reacted to this, but not too much. So because of this, this basically made it so that atmospheric CO2 and oxygen were both pretty high uh, because now all of these organisms that did photosynthesis and that may have caused this glaciation to begin with had lots of food, lots of CO2 to do photosynthesis with to produce lots more oxygen. So this is another event like the great oxidation event that was thought to have put in lots of CO2 in the ocean or uh, lots of oxygen into the oceans and the atmosphere, which is obviously quite helpful for life as we know it today. And all of this glacial sediment was also being dumped into the ocean, which means nutrients for those same photosynthetic things that this boost in oxygen, this boost in photosynthesis, this boost in nutrients is thought to have possibly influenced the Cambrian explosion that we talked about last episode, which <laughs> as we mentioned last episode, paved the way for life as we know it today. Yeah. That was kind of the big one. The Cambrian, you know, quote what was the other term? explosion. It was an explosion. Uh, or, yeah. Like, or like what? pop. Yeah. Explosion. Pop, you know, something happened there and it was a big deal. It was. And so these glaciations, it has been hypothesized that these, that the Cambrian explosion would not have happened when it did, if not for these glaciations happening. Wow. So thanks, Snowball Earth. Very cool. And uh, thank you, Gavin, for bringing us down that uh, rabbit hole and giving us a little bit better of an idea of what, so you've been using the term Snowball Earth, but is it also fair to call these ice ages or is that a separate thing? This is like advanced ice age, like Q Q SpongeBob meme of this <laughs> isn't your darkness. this isn't your everyday darkness. This is advanced darkness. So when people use the term ice age, they're referring to a different thing. Yeah, like the ice age that okay. we had 
recently. So I think the the last glacial maximum was like 18,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago or so. Um, right. At most, at least in North America, I'm not quite sure what the glaciers were doing over in Europe, but I think they were more extensive in North America. Uh, they made it to like Southern New York, maybe to like central Pennsylvania. So this might be what I was thinking of when I was trying to define, uh, yeah. You know, snowball earlier as I was thinking of the ice ages, but okay. So they are, they are two different things that, you know, share a common idea. Exactly. And it's like even vaguely similar causes, you know, like it is one of the contributing factors to the recent ice ages, which we can do again, an entire episode about, um, is, uh, the Himalayas being, uh, their, their mountain building increasing, you know, that's just, as you build really tall mountains, that's a lot more rock to be weathered, which, as we've talked about a couple times in this episode, uh, rocks weathering sucks CO2 out of the atmosphere. And if you have a lot more rocks to be weathered, that sucks out more CO2, which decreases temperatures and can cause an ice age. And that's one of the things, again, one of the things, not the thing, but one of the things that is hypothesized to have kickstarted these recent glaciations today but imagine that on a much like infinitely bigger scale and that's snowball earth and that is the episode on snowball earth this has been episode 51 of i wish you were dead a podcast about things that used to be alive my name is mike and that is gavin keep an eye out next week for our one year anniversary episode which i am very much looking forward to take care everybody and we'll see you next week This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fanella Campanino. It was sound edited by Mike Bryson and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you.